You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Malinowski. Sadie Smith, the award-winning English writer, was 12 years old when she realized her family were descendants of slaves. I hadn't really considered the idea that the entire population of Jamaica is a descendant of a slave trade. That was news to me at 12, and I think that's a very strange and late piece of knowledge. Knowing this earlier might have explained her feeling of being different. But Smith doesn't blame her mother for not telling her sooner. I see her problem now when I have a child is there's never a good time to tell your child about slavery <laughs> or, or the Holocaust. It's not, when is that a good day? It's never, she's seven, does she need to know about the Holocaust right now? Can I wait till nine or twelve? Or... It's very hard to explain to a child. In this interview from 2017, Smith talks to Sönne Rifpia about history and heritage, but also about learning from young writers and viewing her readers as cyborgs. Okay, Swing Time. That is the title of your book and of a movie that I know forwards and backwards. Oh, really? Because I spend a lot of time, like you did, watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. But it also means that this is a novel that swings in time, doesn't it? Right. Um, it's actually not a film that I knew very well. I, I, obviously, I remembered the title. Um, originally, I wanted to put a comma after swing, and um, my husband said that was the most pretentious thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> We, we took the comma out. Um, but So I, I watched the film as a process of writing the book, and I didn't remember it very well at all. I, I think I remember the roller skating part, that was about it. But um, a lot of the movies in the book aren't movies I knew particularly well. Or, and the main um, movie thread in it about Jenny Lagon, she's not someone I'd ever heard of until I started writing the book. So it was a kind of... Uh, they're false memories, you know, I didn't really have them. I kind of constructed them as I went along. One of the many great pleasures of reading Swing Time is that it's impossible not to go on the internet and see a lot of clips with yeah. the old movies. I, I, I wanted that, and I really feel... It's something I learned from younger writers, that, um, that your reader is a kind of cyborg because of these phones that you all have in your pocket. And so a lot of the business of literature is defunct. You know, it's not necessary... I don't know, if you open Middlemarch, there are all these loving descriptions of... Uh, a certain piece of English land, a certain kind of house, or this is all unnecessary now, you know. So I, I don't, I don't do it anymore. And I presume that the reader has this power to Google, and that instead of just being a depressing thing, it can be quite creative. You know, you kind of play with the knowledge that they will look up these clips and see what you saw. Well, it, it could sound a bit depressing because it would get you out of work. No, it's, it's just down. a new way to work. You've always had to find new ways to work. You know, photography is a challenge to painting and the internet is a challenge to a certain kind of prose. That's fine. You're going to read a little extract to get us yes. into the... Uh, would, you, would you place us? Or are you starting from um, the very... I big... always read the beginning, so I'm just going to read a little bit uh, later on. Um, this is just about the character, the narrator, her mother and her best friend, Tracy, um, who lives in a different council estate on the other side of the road. Long before it became her career, my mother had a political mind. It was in her nature to think of people collectively. 
Even as a child, I noticed it and felt instinctively that there was something chilly and unfeeling in her ability to analyze so precisely the people she lived among, her friends, her community, her own family. We were all at one and the same time people she knew and loved, but also objects of study, living embodiments of all she seemed to be learning up at Middlesex Polytechnic. She held herself apart, always. She never submitted, for example, to the neighborhood cult of sharpness, the passion for shiny shell suits and sparkling fake gems, for whole days spent in the hair salon, children in 50 quid trainers, settees paid for over several years on higher purchase, although neither would she ever entirely condemn it. People are not poor because they've made bad choices, my mother liked to say. They make bad choices because they're poor. But though she was serene and anthropological about these matters in her college essays or while lecturing me and my father across a dinner table, I knew in her real life she was often exasperated. She didn't pick me up from school anymore, my father did that now, because the scene there aggravated her too much, in particular the way each afternoon time collapsed and all those mothers became kids again, kids who'd come to collect their kids, and all these kids together turned from school with relief, free finally to speak with each other in their own way and to laugh and joke and eat ice cream from the waiting ice cream van and to make what they considered to be a natural amount of noise. My mother didn't fit into all of that any longer. She still cared for the group, intellectually, politically, but she was no longer one of them. Every now and then she did get caught up in it, usually by some error of timing, and found herself trapped in a conversation with her mother, often Tracy's, on Wilsdon Lane. On these occasions she could turn callous, making a point of mentioning each new academic achievement of mine or inventing some although she knew that all Tracy's mother could offer in return was more of our dance teacher's praise, which was, to my mother, an entirely worthless commodity. My mother was proud of trying harder than Tracy's mother, than all the mothers, of having got me into a half-decent state school instead of one of the several terrible ones. She was in a competition of caring, and yet her fellow contestants, like Tracy's mother, were so ill-equipped when placed beside her that it was a fatally lopsided battle. I often wondered, is it some kind of trade-off? Do others have to lose so we can win? I think this is a pretty wonderful introduction to the narrator's mother, who is a very important figure and a very complicated one. Can we talk a little about mothers? Can we talk about this mother to begin with? Because she has aspirations. And, and I mean, if you write them down on a paper, I would like to help my community and I want to have a better education right. for myself and my child. That sounds wonderful, but she is somehow really annoying. Yeah, she's quite annoying. <laughs> I, I think, um, I was thinking about the way that some struggles are, um, even when they're righteous, are personally deforming, you know. You know, a good example is, uh, you know, when, when I first started writing essays or doing student work, I think a lot of what I wrote was quite angry. And then you're encouraged, in England anyway, to take on what is considered a, a sophisticated voice. And this sophisticated voice is, is neutral. It holds no grudges. It is kind of serene. And, um, is that the voice you're talking in now? I suppose so. Um, and the problem with that is, is it, it's, it's easy to be serene when your life 
is easy. It's nice to be nice when people are nice to you. But, but when you're not, you, you're in struggle, you know, um, and that creates a lot of rage. And I, I was always interested in the kind of personal deformations that involves, you know, when you feel that you're in a kind of battle. Um, and, and at street level, I suppose, in, in my family, certainly in my extended family, um, you felt this uh, battle. I don't think white middle-class mothers of my generation put their kids out to school every day with anxiety. You know, they didn't have fear. And so you, you can be civilized and serene and you, have, you can elaborate things like a sense of humor or a, a passion for sculpture or you have time for these kind of concerns. But when your main concern is um, a kind of survival in your mind, whether warranted or not, everything else is a luxury. Do you see what I mean? And I, I, I did think about that a lot. Um, I mean, I had, like all extended Caribbean families in London, you had a cousin you knew was in jail or somebody who had died of substance abuse. You know, you have all these kind of cautionary tales. So just trying to uh, survive takes a lot of work, takes a lot of single-mindedness. And, and I think some of that can be difficult. I mean, the mother character in this book is a little bit more me than my mother, but certainly, all the mothers I knew, they weren't easy people, but they didn't have the luxury of being easy people. They were fighting what they considered to be a battle every day. But apparently the kids are also fighting a battle since they turn their backs on the school and then go out into the real life. Yes. Where they can be as they are and make the noise they think. Is that a general thing, do you think, for kids? Or is this specific also? Well, I think I've just been reading before, at lunch today. I was reading a book I should have read a long time ago, but I... The only time I get to read is when I'm away from my children. <laughs> so I had, a, I had a, this book I've been wanting to read for a while, which is called uh, Black and British. It was a TV series um, recently in England. It's by a Nigerian academic. And I, I was reading the book. And even in the first two chapters, uh, his argument is basically that um, black, the black presence in Britain is at least a thousand years old, which is um, evidentially true. And also that the... the the diaspora in Britain are deeply intertwined at every moment in their history. And I, I think uh, if I had been 13 and known any of that, uh, I would have had a substantially different consciousness. I think it's an incredible thing to take from children any knowledge of what they're doing in a place. I, I think that's, that is one of the most deforming things of all, is just you just had no clue the thing I always remember, which is deeply embarrassing, and when I tell my American friends they can't believe it, but when I was about 12, having a discussion with some other Jamaican-British children, and in this conversation we all realized, because I'd recently seen in the encyclopedia a picture of an Arawak Indian who was described as a Jamaican native, and I had never heard, I didn't understand what that meant, because I thought my family and people like me were native to Jamaica. So you had all this knowledge about the slave trade as it applied to West Africa and America, but I suppose I hadn't really considered the idea that the entire population of Jamaica is a descendant of a slave trade. That was news to me at 12, and I think that's a very strange and late piece of knowledge. Yes. And to have known it earlier would have explained a great deal. And it was not a knowledge you could achieve at home? Yes, my, my mother... I see her problem now when I have a child is there's never a good time to tell your child about slavery <laughs> or, or the Holocaust. It's not, when is that a good day? It's never, 
Sometimes I think about it and some conversations go towards it and I think, she's seven, does she need to know about the Holocaust right now? Can I wait till nine or 12 or... So I'm not surprised at that. She, she taught us a, a lot of things, but I can see the hesitancy. It's very hard to explain to a child uh, mass atrocity. It, it, it's actually quite a difficult conversation to have, even if you're eager for them to understand. It, it's such painful knowledge. Um, yeah. In this half half-decent school, as you say, where the narrator uh, is going to school and where Tracy eventually comes to. There is an amazing mix of, of children of all kinds of backgrounds, which you would think maybe would sort of make the problem go away. Everybody is from everywhere else or a mix right. of it. So, so is that a, a possibility? It, it didn't make the problem go away, but it was a very um, interesting atmosphere. You had kind of white liberal uh, families, basically ex-communist crowd, who'd sent these, their children to these schools on political principle, you know. Recent migrants, working class kids who had no choice, uh, middle class idealists. It, it was a, that's an interesting mix of people. So, um, uh, you know, it might not have been the kind of school that marks highly on a regulator's test, but to me it was an extremely effective place to be, a really interesting place to be. For those of you who have not had time or possibility to read Swing Time yet, we might just say a few words about where we are. It's oh yeah, it's, um, a, it's a story of two girls. Yes, and they meet in a dance class in the early 80s, um, and they're both mixed race, but um, it, one of them is the the wrong way round, which in England, <laughs> in England in those days was to have a black mother and a white father is quite unusual. Um, and they grow up together. Uh, they separate for various kind of personal and academic reasons. It just traces their, um, their early life till about the age of their early 30s, I'd say. There's a very uh, beautiful description of the attraction they have to each other, and that right. is that they are like cut out of the same piece of skin. Yeah. They have the same tone of skin. This is something I feel about race, actually, that, um, you know, the, the, um, the received liberal wisdom these days, I think even Obama tweeted this recently, is that children are b aren't born racist, they have to be taught to be racist. I really disagree. <laughs> I think children are instinctively racist. And I think lots of things that are natural uh, are not particularly good. I, the problem with the analogy is the assumption that if it's natural, it must be good. Well, also you know, kidney cancer and, and dying of hunger in the street is also natural. But the point of civilized life is that you try and improve upon nature, which is usually disastrous and red in tooth and claw. But I, I do think that, that children have a deep instinct for like, you know? Mm. Um, if, they, if they grow up, that's why I saw in West Africa in completely um, black environments and they see a white person, they're horrified by instinct, no matter how young they are. It's complete horror, like, what is that? There's a deep instinct in people not to understand what is different from them. Because that's natural doesn't mean that's something to be encouraged or pursued as a policy. Lots of instincts in people are, are lamentable. So uh, when I thought about those children, I thought they are attracted to each other because they are similar. Mm. They have a kind of gut tribal instinct. That girl across the room looks like me. She seems like me. We have the same skin. That's my girl. That's my girl. <laughs> that, that's a, I don't think you can deny that instinct in people. It's about how far you let it go, that tribal instinct. And 
what you have to allow um, in tribalism. Tribalism is, is natural, but it's not the only um, instinct we have. And it is, I mean, it, Tracy is her girl, but she is a very difficult girl because on one hand she has this wonderful uh, ability, she can dance the way that anybody who has ever wanted to dance, I mean, she's a dancer. Right. And, uh, and the narrator wants to dance and she dances. I mean, I, as far as I can tell, she's even a quite good dancer. Right. She sings better than she dances. But, but because the narrator's mother is so keen on educating her right. and getting her out of there, she's, she's taken away from, from this right. uh, environment. While Tracy's mother, who is... I don't know if you would say she's a more loving mother, but right. she's, she's also a more lost mother. Right. Um, has Tracy go that way? Right. And, and that separates the girls. That's one of the things. And actually, Tracy, in, in my humble opinion, is not a very nice girl. No, but, but she's also kind of engaged in a battle. I always think Tracy is someone who has an enormous amount of spirit and energy. And someone like that can be directed in many different forms. I suppose all of my novels have, have always been concerned about um, natural capacities, talents, which I think everybody has in some form. There isn't anyone on earth who doesn't have something of value to offer. And then the question of how we organize our social lives is how do we um, exploit that value? Exploit is a, seems like a negative word, but <laughs> to, to not have your value exploited is to be completely forgotten, you know not to be able to use your hands when you're good with your hands or use your mind when you're good with your mind. Um, and nothing about racism, sexism, etc. would matter if it weren't for the mass loss of ability. That's when I think of the history of slavery, I think of six million people whose human value, whatever it was, was spilt on the ground. It never amounted to anything, it was never allowed to amount to anything. It's, it's the most awful waste of human capacity. Um, so that's that's the way I I look at it that that you have all these people with possibilities within them of all different kinds, and uh, when they are lost, when they are not seen, um, that that's a terrible collective loss. And Tracy's one of those people. She has a great amount of spirit, will, um, but nowhere to place it. The narrator has, I would say, less ability to right. to do something. She's. She's actually annoying in a different way yeah. because she doesn't she's do passive. anything with... with uh, she's passive, but she's luckier. Yeah. Um, she's luckier and, and then again not really lucky because right. she uh, gets a job being an assist, personal assistant for a, a very famous singer, right. Amy. And uh, this is a person, when we talk about voices, Amy is also a person who... She's from Australia originally. Right. But you cannot hear that. She has a sort of universal right. voice, doesn't she? Um, well, all the way through, I was thinking about power, the way people use people, basically, um, in some ways that are tolerable, in some ways which are unforgivable. That storyline basically came out of, I suppose, living in New York and uh, seeing so many young people, talented young people with lots of ability, uh, selling their skills and times to the highest bidder, you know, in any capacity, which is what the economy demands. Now there's really extreme examples. I'd love to see a novel which is about all the apps that basically utilize young people. There's something called TaskRabbit. Do you have that here yet? No. Where you can I've just press <laughs> your phone and some person will come and make your bed. You know, I mean, physically make your bed out of a box. 
and you, you pay them by the hour or, or put a, I mean in New York you hear stories about literally task rabbit being used so someone will come and put a light bulb in or put a painting on the wall Seriously? so this kind of incompetence is then farmed out to a young person who no matter what you're doing at that moment must then you know you might be watching Netflix eating a burger but the phone goes and you are now basically a kind of servant right anywhere in the city for anyone at any time um, under the idea of a I don't know, fluid economy. Um, that, that really interests me, all that stuff. Because um, obviously everybody has to, has to work, but, but uh, that kind of work clearly is without unionization, without guarantee, without... I mean, it's literally labor for money in the moment. Um, so in, in my book, the character isn't quite that, but she is a kind of factotum. So everything that she is has been sublimated to the will of somebody else, which is what... Um, personal assistant often means in New York these days. It's hiring someone to do your bidding in all areas at all times. Um, and I found that quite an interesting example of uh, exploitation of power. I want to talk more about that, but I would like to go back to the two girls because yeah. I think that the whole story about this friendship is, is very moving, even though I've now perhaps sold them wrongly, saying that one is annoying and the other one is a bit mean. <laughs> but, both a bit but, annoying. But, but I mean, many girls are uh, at, at their sort of t in their tender years. Right. And, and, but there's something about this, uh, it's, it's like a love affair. It is, and I, I mean, I told this story before, but I think part of which, what sparked it was having my own daughter and seeing the way she related to other girls and other girls related to her. Because I suppose in the culture, the, the cliche of it is that girls are jealous of each other, they're envious, they fight because they compare each other. And I, certainly there is an aspect of that, but I think what's much more acute is this kind of radical uh, empathy. I don't mean empathy in the kind of lovely, generous way, but just the ability to... <laughs> Imagine what somebody else's life is like, which it seems to me to generalize a little bit um, for whatever reason, and if it's an essential quality or acculturation or whatever it is. Girls from an early age display. And I, I noticed it once when I went on a, to a children's party with my daughter, and as we were leaving, an, another little girl who's in her class said to me, where are you going now? I said, home. What are you going to do at home? I, I don't know, we're just going to read a story. What story is she going to read? I don't know, maybe two stories. What time is she going to go to bed? I don't know, maybe eight. Is she going to have hot chocolate? I don't know. She wanted to know every single stage of what was going to happen with my daughter when they were parted, so she could compare it to her own experience. Whereas my son, if he's leaving another boy, he says, bye. <laughs> and literally that boy could be dead, and he wouldn't. And it would not cross his mind until he saw him again. He's like, oh, you, yeah. You, that friend of mine that I saw yesterday. So that, that, that difference um, I thought was really interesting, that w women continue to... Uh, it's like a projection. So I, I think it's sold in the culture as a negative thing, but I think it's quite interesting. The ability to wonder exactly what your friend is doing, when, what she's doing, it, what her new relationship is like. And then, of course, in adulthood, it extends to what's her marriage like, what's her car like, what's her house like, what's her friend... It's, it's a kind of compulsion, but, but it's, it's very narrative in, in, at its root, you know which is part of the reason I think the history of the novel is so, um, almost before any other art form, so entwined with women. You know, some of its earliest practitioners and its greatest practitioners are women. And the readers are women. And, uh... and the readers are women, yeah, absolutely. The first <laughs> Sorry, readers guys. are women. Yeah. <laughs> Many of them are, at least. Well, this may explain why I was sitting in, at an Italian beach this summer and 
I was so impressed by the amazing amount of talk that came out of the mouth of the Italian women. They could they talk. don't stop. Yeah. They, they lived there for they, two years. They yeah. don't stop at all. Maybe they were asking these questions. Right. So what are you going to do afterwards? And how right. you what is the what could, as you say, the positive side of things that you normally see negatively? Is this a kind of a writer's delight? I th I think. It's just interesting. Like I, I remember watching. Some of you might have seen the last season of Girls and the, uh, the Lena Dunham show. And there's a lot of critique about, oh well, why do they have to all fall out at the end? Why are they all angry with each other? Women don't hate. But I, I thought what it was more about was the fact that these women had a real relation with each other. They were incredibly involved with each other, which obviously inevitably involves bust-ups, arguments, anger. If you're not involved with each other, if you're only meeting, as American men quite often do, to watch a football game or flip a burger. There's no danger of that kind of argument because you're never in it that deep in the first place. So I think it's a kind of tribute to the intimacy of those relations that they can cause so much German drang. You know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm asking you because I, I do feel also in swing time that there is, I mean, a lot of the things that you would say, this is how it is to be multicultural is, is good and, you know, the, you... you do switch up and down a bit the good and the bad because there is a part of the story which plays out in West Africa mm -hmm. where uh, Amy the singer travels to and and obviously the narrator is, is with her and also there without her and and some things play out there which are not entirely good you would think mm -hmm. that coming to the original source of uh, uh, well, a country where people live in in a more natural way, right. but it's it's actually a very a very difficult place. I think the thing I really want to get at, and it's again in this incredible uh, biography I'm reading, Black and British, is that the histories are not separate things. Like it, it's been um, there's too much uh, concentration on the idea that that Britain is a kind of homogenous place until the 50s and then all these migrants turn up and it becomes multicultural. The history of Britain is multicultural from the beginning. There's an extraordinary anecdote in that biography set not far from the bit of West Africa I was talking about this time in Sierra Leone where he describes a, a massive slave fortress which was built, its wall was like that and the other side of the wall was the villa where they, the British men who were trading in these slaves lived and drank with their wives and children. So the slave yard is attached to the house. It's like built onto the house. And there's a little bit at the back, which in the women's section, which was a kind of, basically he names it as a rape house. That's what it was. It was a place where these women were taken advantage of occasionally or whenever they could be. And then these men on the side and then this proper British villa with a lovely fireplace. They used to put holly up. Even in the ground now around this fortress, he says there's an incredible amount of bottles because the fascinating thing is that everybody drank such a huge amount or seeming to be ha happy. I mean, they had fancy dinners, invited people in. But the bottles are very significant to me, that when you're living next to a slave house, which you somehow have managed to block out of your consciousness on a daily basis, something terrible is inside you. You know, something's rising up. They drank to excess. And all the accounts of you know, British traders coming to visit this fortress, it was called Bunce, um, mentioned the drinking. Incredible about drinking last night. Everybody was incredibly drunk, as if the bad conscience was in the drink, you know. But that anecdote, um, even towards the, uh, the end of each month, the slaves would be brought out the front and branded, um, and the brand was the brand of George III, the King of England. 
the history is like that. There's no time for separation or to think that it's some kind of um, modern affectation of writers like me or historians like him to uh, make the past multicultural where it wasn't. The opposite is true. The illusion was that we weren't completely entwined in each other's lives in morbid ways and in interesting ways and in complicated ways. Um, so when the character goes back to West Africa, I think she, she imagines she's going as a kind of tourist or at a distance, but the history of West Africa is simultaneously the history of England, the history of Portugal, the history of Spain. Th these are not separate issues. She's deeply involved from the beginning, and just being um, black, I think when I met a lot of black tourists in West Africa who felt um, they were somehow separate or had a special communication with the places they were on by virtue of their blackness, I think you're disabused of that too, you know? Because every little local culture is so specific, so distant from your own. So it's a series of kind of um, awakenings and cliches turned over. That was my experience there anyway. But you went to West Africa, you've said somewhere, but you had a midlife crisis. Is that what made you go to West Africa? Um, it's funny, my, when my mum went, I thought, 10 years earlier, I thought, well, she's having a midlife crisis, and then, <laughs> and then my turn came. Um, uh, I, I think that feeling of going to a place which you were not born in, which you have no direct relation to apart from with 200 years se separate, and feeling yourself at home, that's a feeling I wanted to interrogate, I, because of course it's sentimental. Like When I was in Gambia or Liberia or Ghana, with other often African-American tourists and people are crying and moved and, you know, part of me wants to separate from that because I think, well, we're still tourists, we're all tourists here and we don't really know the, these places, we're strangers to the specificity of this place, but it's also hard to suppress uh, a feeling which sometimes feels uh, mystical, you know. There are accounts of people um, being at Cape Coast Castle or being in um, the Gambia or in Sierra Leone and feeling the presence of their ancestors or... I mean, I, I'm, I always think of myself as a pretty fiercely rational person, but I think sometimes certain experiences test your, test your rationality in that sense. I did have very strong feelings when I was there. Even if they're self-created, they're still present. Well, if we're talking a little bit about ancestors, could you describe your family? Because it's, it's a... It's a kind of... Um, on my father's side, I used to always have these um, fantasies that we were secretly Jewish somewhere down the line, but it's not the case. We're just uh, English, so English, going back centuries, back to Sutton, who... We're just English, that's all there's going on there. Why did you there. want to be Jewish? Because I I, when I was a kid, I connected it with a kind of, I suppose, sentimentally with an intellectual tradition or something I was concerned with of my father's family, um, you know, my grandmother was a maid in a fancy house. My grandfather briefly had a fish and chip van, but it went wrong. <laughs> you know, you want, you want to kind of imagine some slightly grander mm. uh, background for yourself. So I guess that's what I was thinking about from but my no. perspective. <laughs> um, but no. Um, and then my mother's side are just Jamaicans. My mother came. Um, she was that generation a little too young for Windrush, so she one of many, many Jamaican children was left in Jamaica while their mothers came over to work. It's a super tra traumatic thing for a whole generation, so you just missed your, your mother for 
11 years or whatever, and then would join her when, it was, when there was enough money to find somewhere decent to live, etc. That was my mother's story. Um, and going back, I would say, uh, I mean, most Jamaicans think of themselves as Ghanaian, um, but I did that genetic test and it said Nigeria, which was very surprising. <laughs> so I don't, but I, someone told me that genetic test is incredibly imprecise and not accurate, so I don't know. But, um, but Nigeria is hot. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? it's great. But my mum put a lot of time and effort into Ghana, so I think she was a bit disappointed. They'd <laughs> gone the other way. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my, I think on both sides, my family are not, there's no, uh, you can't get any record. On one hand, I'm called Smith, which is impossible to investigate, you know, in England, and working-class Smith is just, it might as well be written in water, you can't get anywhere. Um, and in my mother's family, there, there's, um, I mean, she herself was born into very extreme poverty, but, um, you know, like most Jamaicans, uh, my family believe they're related to various famous Jamaicans. I'm not going to bore you with a list of people we're possibly related to. Um, but so I think you, part of it is you construct your own history. You know, maybe maybe it's factual. I don't know. I'm not going to uh, repeat it. But but you find ways to kind of establish your family in time and space, even if you don't have family trees and written records and so on. So is there? I I know that your parents divorced at at some point, but is there a very romantic story about this no. British man? Who... No, no, fortunately <laughs> not. No, no romance. No, I, I'm trying to think like all the uh, kind of phony parents in my novels um, are all. There isn't any story as as brutal as my actual parents. No, <laughs> no, unfortunately not. But. Um, but it's nice, like writing on beauty. Is, a part of writing is is uh, daydreaming. Like, what would it be like to have two parents who were wildly in love, like Howard and Kiki are, and who have similar interests? And or you know, part of it's pure daydreaming. It's like a kind of childish habit. The strange thing I think is that it's convincing to people. So I, I did have an incident when I was in a playground in New York not long ago, where a woman came up to me and said, kind of conspiratorially, oh my father taught Wellesley, what did your father teach? And I was like, my father didn't teach anything, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I realized to her that on beauty, that was my family in her mind, you know. So it's funny how that happens, this kind of uh, transition of the fictional into the real, yeah. I thought that was one of the reasons you did not want to write novels in first-person narrator style. Yes. Until, until now. Um, I think, like in my mother's case, she's so used to being mistaken for all these various uh, <laughs> all the women. Yeah, so she doesn't. I don't think she bothers about it anymore. Um, and and part of it is, um, again, a, it's it's almost like acting. Like, what would it be like if I were a dancer instead of a writer? What if I had no siblings? What if I had a job? What if I? Um, what if? What if? What if? It's all. It's all of that. Even what if I'd had a friend? Because I never had a friend like that. So it's a kind of fantasy life. I know it's a kind of fantasy life, but what is not a fantasy is that you actually sing very well. I, I sing okay, but um, oh, but not yeah. I'd rather write. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't know that you would rather write in the beginning, did you? Well, my my family there's a we're, there's a lot of performers in my family, and I think. Um, I mean, my middle brother is a comedian and actor, and he has, he has an album out right now. Um, his fourth, I think. 
And my little brother is a actor and he also raps. And uh, There's a lot of that in my family. You know, I've got singer aunts and uncles and um, just in the context of my family, my singing was not anything to write home about. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but then the love of literature, where does that come from? Um, because I, I, I have I can't a feeling from, from reading your essays that you don't read books, you eat books. You I love to read. Them. I mean, it's not, my father didn't read. He, he had aspirations to be a reader, and he had read when he was young, but I never saw him read anything apart from the Evening Standard. Um, my mom is, is a great reader, and it's really from her. Just because she had so many books, they were everywhere, and that was very helpful. Um, but my brother's a... I mean, my little brother... He's going to hate me for saying this. My little brother's <laughs> never read my book, so I don't know. Maybe he's reading some other book, but definitely not mine. Um, and my middle brother reads, but for them, music was the main thing. You know, music kind of took them away. It just depends what gets you young. And I, I did love music, but I love books more. You often say about writers that you have to find your own voice. I don't, I don't really feel I have any voice. And I think most writers that I know that I like, the thing they have in common is a feeling of impersonality, of not really sounding like anything or anyone. And I know it's an illusion because you seem distinct in the minds of others, but um, I, I think that's a characteristic of writers that I notice, that they look around and think, look at all these people with personality. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I think personality is very mysterious to writers. That's why it's quite fluid in them, you know. That's why you shouldn't marry them and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are two writers who have yeah, so we, we're married, aware. so you're just yeah. two non-personalities. That's, right. that's an interesting... Right. Uh, yeah. I think it's the opposite with poets. Poets have too much personality. They have the opposite issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking about personalities, I would like to go back, back to Trace's personality because it's it's intriguing and it's difficult and it's kind of painful, I think. And there there is a, a painful scene in the book, which is uh, a birthday party. We were talking yeah. about another birthday party, but this is a birthday party where Tracy and the narrator come to a house of a different class. Yeah, I think, you know, when I wrote that scene, a lot of stuff from my childhood I kind of don't dwell on and don't think about too much, but it's undoubtedly a strange experience um, to be always surrounded by people who don't look like you a lot of the time when you're outside of your house or your family, and then also to be surrounded by people whose ways of being seem so different. Like some of the memories, I uh, just little things. Like I guess in one moment in the book, there's a she goes into a house and she sees a huge jar full of coins, mm. and I do remember moments like that. In childhood, thinking, who the fuck has? Why, what are you doing with that money? Why is it sitting in a jar on your kitchen counter? When we used to go ten rounds over who's going to get this pound that mum might or may or may not give us. It's those little things that um, are completely unconscious. I think if it, now I have plenty of jars filled with change, I didn't think twice about it. Or I was reading a wonderful novel today in, about poor students, and they go into a rich person's house and and the first thing they notice is look at all that fruit in the bowl and I remember that too like who buys all these peaches and fresh orange juice and doesn't think twice about them rotting in the bowl all that kind of stuff which becomes you don't see it anymore it doesn't take very long for you to forget all of that and reading that sentence in that other person's book I suddenly remembered oh yeah 
I used to think that fresh fruit was a sign of intense wealth. <laughs> and it's that kind of thing that you've, you block out and forget. So it was interesting writing it and trying to remember that mindset in which a jar of coins seems almost offensive. Like, you've got so much money, you just leave it hanging around in, in a jar. And no one tries to get in it, and no one steals it at night, and no one's trying to buy anything with it. It's just excess. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's quite, it's quite hard to remember. I think thinking back through money is one of the hardest things to do because money is one of those things which disguises itself as, as nature, you know. Mm. You begin to think of it as natural. But at this birthday party, uh, somebody actually does, if not steal, I mean, Tracy uh, crosses the border of how to behave. But I think when you're a kid in England and you come from a slightly different background, it, it feels like everything you do crosses the border. Every, everything you say, every, the way you talk, the way you move, it's all shocking to everybody all the time. And so I think you can have two responses, which is well, my response is always to be on my very best behavior, trying <laughs> to show everybody what a good girl I was. But I always admired girls like Tracy who just weren't going to toe that line. I think it's very, it was very bold. It often got them into terrible trouble because it's just so easy to, to fool when you're in that situation. Um, just in the practical sense, you got expelled. You know, the expelling of black children from English state schools was, you know, constant. You didn't expel white kids, but if a boy raised, black boy raised his voice, or he was gone, gone for a week or gone for two weeks, and so it, it, you were aware that it was really easy to fall out of the system. So I kind of responded by being very, very good. But I think if you are very, very good, there's a little bit of self-hatred which comes with it because you think, well, why do I have to be twice as good as everybody else here? Why am I doing this? Who am I doing it for? There is no easy way out of that. No, no. And I, uh, another kind of incident that spurred this book was quite s separate. As I was trying to research an article about a halfway house in Cricklewood, near where I live. So just interviewing people who were homeless, staying in this halfway house. And um, all of them, uh, the half, half of them were recent immigrants, like literally just off the boat from Syria, Poland, um, all over Africa, West Africa. Um, and then the other half, and this is the bit I really didn't want to look at, but just I couldn't avoid it because I kept on doing these interviews and it was the case, were black British people of my age often who went to my school or a school near my school. And the more I thought about it, it just, this kind of rage, like how is it possible that this halfway house is half and half black British people and people who've literally just arrived? How did they find themselves in the same situation? It, I really, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not an anthropologist, I'm not a political scientist. I had no tools to try and understand this uh, system, but I kept on interviewing these kids. Uh, a lot of them were from the Stonebridge estate, which is very near my house. And it was, it would always start, the story you ask them about their childhood, and it would always be really happy till about five, six, seven, and then it all started to go wrong in school and in every... And you see how black boys in particular become these kind of enemies of the state. They're cute little boys, and then they're not. The teacher doesn't treat them like that, nobody treats them like that. The police, parents, people on the street. And it, it, really, um, it, it really struck me. It's like a whole generation, you know? I mean, it, it just it kind of blew my mind. And then as we talk through their lives, quite often when we got to the very end, and I tried, and I asked them, how, what they thought had caused this or the systems that were involved, this thing kept on coming up of the Illuminati. 
which I found really fascinating. It was a kind of elaborate conspiracy theory, popular in America and popular amongst, uh, as I found, these, these lost souls. And I, instead of thinking, I kind of did more and more research into Illuminati and it kind of turned up in the book. I tried to think, what is the, that theory? The theory is basically that there is a kind of powerful group of people um, it's usually powerful Jews and powerful blacks together, working together at a very high level. It always involves Jay-Z, always. Um, Beyonce and Warren Buffett and George Soros. It's like an elaborate conspiracy theory. And kind of, I suppose, laughable on the surface, but, but as it was described, it was so detailed. And I thought, what it really is, is like a kind of system of study in the absence of study, you know? Mm -hmm. In the absence of school, in the absence of university, these very busy, interesting, clever minds have nothing to work on, but they have a phone, and this kind of conspiratorial information passes very easily. And it almost made more sense, this explanation that there is a secret hidden group of people trying to keep you down, than the true explanation, which is the British state just abandoned you. <laughs> that, seemed, that was intolerable, that idea. So the other idea, the conspiracy theory, almost seemed more palatable because it involves secret shady forces and it's unstoppable and you can't control it, then the sad and dismal truth that you were failed at the school level, at the housing level, at the welfare level, it's, it's so depressing, that truth, that I think it's pretty hard to tolerate. It's interesting because in the book, there's also, they, I mean, what is reality? Tracy lives with her mother without her father because the father... Uh, according to Tracy, is on tour with Michael Jackson. Right. He is one of the key dancers. Uh, she can point him out, right. kind of. And uh, this is not true. No. But, I, I mean, I was a terrible liar as a child. and I, um, It's interesting when your children start lying, because in a way it's very creative. You know, you want to encourage it. <laughs> These elaborate stories about when they had a shower, when they didn't have a shower, and all the rest of it. Um, but also you have this kind of moral obligation to, to kind of deal with the borders of truth so that they can, unless of course they want to be writers, then they'll be fine. <laughs> but in order that they can function in the, in the world. Um, but a lot of that kind of behavior, like Tracy's father is, I suppose, a petty criminal. Um, but I think if you live in an urban area and you meet petty criminals or small-time drug dealers or any of those kind of people, you're aware that one of the things they are, among many other things, are the people with the most get-up-and-go in that neighborhood, you know? We, we kind of have a, a kind of folk appreciation of it in burglars, right? The idea of a heist. Everybody loves a heist. You make movies about heists. Because you can see that there's a certain inspiration behind this criminality. Um, but in the absence of these, like, educational structures, or it's not that I want to... Um, celebrate the criminal, but, but you, you are aware, like the kind of men in my neighborhood who were like that, they were not stupid, you know. They were using the same kind of smarts that businessmen use, that, that those boys on the trade floor in London use. You know, they're bright. Um, so Tracy's father, to me, is, is bright. He has possibilities, ideas, um, but in the absence of any, anything productive to do with them, this is what happens. There is a structural problem there. There's a structural problem. It doesn't mean that if you, you know, the other liberal ideal is that, oh, if you only gave everybody a nice education, it, the world would be beautiful. And that's Denmark, basically, right? That's, a, <laughs> that's the founding. And, of course, that's not true either. I, I fundamentally believe in 
evil, the capacity for evil. But but you'll you'll never know how large that or small that capacity is without a slightly more level playing field in the first place. We talked earlier on about uh, shame. Now that you say I believe in evil, I know you don't mean you believe in the devil and that people should be evil, but no. that it exists. Yes, I think it's mostly in, in the form of uh, solipsism, in my view. Murder is the most solipsistic thing in the world, isn't it? It's like, if only I can get rid of this person, it will be easier for me. If only this person was out of my way. There's nothing more solipsistic than murder. So uh, but that, to me, is the kind of profound evil. But but it's it's definitely real. And I think when I was younger, um, being brought up a good liberal, I preferred not to believe in it. But I think as you get older, it becomes clear that it, it exists. You now live in New York. Yes. Land of Fred Astaire. Yeah. And Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> Astaire for president, or what? Um, is, oh, I is don't it, know. Is it easier to to be living in a country where you don't have the responsibility for who the president is? I I, I mean, I a lot of people I know, expats, now want to be citizens so that they can protest. So that if they get arrested, they don't get deported <laughs> while protesting. So you, you do, in a way, want to be more involved. Um, but I, I am. I think I'm still in shock. I, I'm, I've never been a, a, a good person in a crisis, in an activist crisis. You know, I, I'm someone who likes to think things through very slowly, and this news cycle is too fast for me. I can't even. I'm not going to be writing any op-eds for the New York Times or anything. I really admire the writers who are able to respond to the insanity at the speed that it's happening, but I'm not one of them. Sadie Smith visited Louisiana Literature Festival in 2013, where she was interviewed by Sønderif Bjerg. The interview was edited by Klaus Ilmer and produced by Mark Christoph Wagner. The Louisiana Literature Podcast is produced by the Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. <laughs>